0: Merry Christmas to you. Glad you're here with us this morning. If you're a guest, welcome. Maybe you're visiting with family or maybe you're just looking for a place to worship on Christmas Eve or maybe some other providential reason brought you here. We're glad you're here this morning. Even if you're not a guest, we're glad you're here this morning too. It's a joy for us to be able to worship together on this Christmas Eve morning. Uh, for those of you who've been with us the last few weeks, you know we, we've been making our way through a series on the Gospel of Luke. It just so happened the way that our series on Ezra ended that we were able to start Luke and be in the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke at just the right time. This morning that means we've landed in Luke 2, verses 1 to 14. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to it here. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your Word together today on this Christmas Eve morning. And Lord, it is our prayer that you would encourage us with the familiar story of the birth of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that this morning we would hear this story and we would leave here with hearts that are ready to worship, that we would say like the angels do here at the end of our passage today, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth with those whom he's pleased. God, we pray that we would leave here with a heart that wants to bring praise to you and wants to bring glory to you because you are worthy. It's in Christ's name we pray this, amen. So what is Christmas really about? What is it that we're actually celebrating this Christmas season? Depending upon whom you ask, you might get a lot of different answers to that question. Case in point, back in 2021, a journalist from Mississippi decided that she would pose the question, what does Christmas mean to you, to a group of elementary school students from Mississippi? Now, as you might expect, the answers that she got in response were pretty interesting and across the board in terms of content. Ariah, a second grader, answered the question by simply saying, Christmas is about presents, and opening the presents and playing with them. Bryson, a fifth grader, responded with this answer. Christmas means giving, loving, and family. And family is the most important part of Christmas because without it you wouldn't have any Christmas time, Christmas presents, or Christmas money. Brooklyn, a first grader, told the reporter that for her Christmas was about joy and happiness. Joe, also a first grader, thought that Christmas was about presents and gold coins. But perhaps the lengthiest, in my mind, most entertaining response came from another first grader named Paisley. When asked the question, what does Christmas mean to you, Paisley responded by saying, and I'm quoting here, Christmas means kindness and support to others, and also I love Santa, and sometimes I give him ten cookies and warm up his milk, and I sometimes leave my name and tell him to enjoy his milk and cookies. It also means presents and kindness, of course, also being with your family, eating treats and watching the Grinch and Christmas movies, and love. That's all I know about Christmas, and it is amazing. Indeed it is. Now here's the thing, if you were to ask a group of adults that same question, what does Christmas mean to you? My guess is that the responses would probably be a a bit more polished. Not many adults would go on long rants about the number of cookies they leave for Santa or the temperature of the milk. But having said that, I would bet that the substance of the responses that you would get from the adults would not be all that different. Like the elementary school students in Mississippi, most adults in the United States would probably say Christmas is about family and giving and Christmas traditions like goodies and movies and opening presents. And listen, there's absolutely nothing wrong with family time or generosity or Christmas traditions or Christmas goodies. In fact, I'm a big proponent of all those things. But this morning, I want to remind you that while all those things are good, none of them are what we're actually celebrating this morning. The real reason why we celebrate Christmas and the real meaning behind Christmas has nothing to do with goodies or family gatherings. Christmas is about the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Or to quote another student from Mississippi, this time a fourth grader named Aaliyah, Christmas is about love for Jesus because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he was born on Christmas Day. Now there's probably more you could say than Aaliyah said. Maybe you could say it in a little fancier way or maybe with a little bit more precision. But Aaliyah's right. Christmas is about love for Jesus. It's about recognizing who Jesus is and what he came to do, and then celebrating who he is and celebrating what he came to do. And it's that reality that I want us to think about today. On this Christmas Eve morning, I want to remind you why the birth of Jesus Christ is indeed the substance of our celebration. Because while we tend to focus on all kinds of different things during the Christmas season, at the end of the day, Christmas is indeed about the birth of our Savior. It's about the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, let's turn our attention to Luke 2, 1-14. to 14. On this Christmas morning, it seems appropriate that we would read from the Christmas story. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand at this point out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Luke 2, 1-14. Words will be on the screen. You can follow along in your own Bibles or you can listen as I read. But either way, the Word of God says this, beginning in verse 1. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So as we've noted in past weeks, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke is alternating back and forth between the story of John the Baptist and the story of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Luke, after a brief Introduction begins with the birth announcement of John the Baptist, and then Luke proceeds to talk about the birth announcement of Jesus Christ. He then goes back to John the Baptist in his birth, before returning now to a discussion of the birth of Jesus Christ. This alternating style, as we pointed out in past weeks, is meant to highlight the importance of John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Messiah, while also emphasizing the unique supremacy of Jesus Christ. And nowhere is that more apparent than in the birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus We're clearly meant to see that the birth of John the Baptist, or in the birth of John the Baptist, that John is a crucial figure in salvation history. But John's birth narrative is just two verses long. His birth is briefly described, and then Luke moves on to talk about the naming of John. Jesus' birth narrative, on the other hand, is 20 verses. And in that, we're clearly meant to see that the birth of Jesus Christ is vastly more important than the birth of John the Baptist. And that's saying something because the birth of John the Baptist was enormously significant. But as significant as it was, it pales in comparison to the significance of the birth of Jesus Christ. And it's not just the amount of verses that clue us into that reality. It's also the substance of what we read in our passages today. And it's that substance that I want us to focus on. Specifically, I want us to think about why the birth of Jesus Christ was and is good news. When the angel comes on the scene in verses 9 to 10, the angel is quick to proclaim that the birth of Jesus is good news. And so this morning... I just want us to remember, why is the birth of Jesus Christ such good news? And to do that, I want to hone in on three aspects of the good news as presented in this passage. First, I want us to think about the content of the good news. Secondly, the effect of the good news. And lastly, the scope of the good news. So let's start by first considering the content of the good news. Verse 10 is our key verse this morning, as it's the news which talks about, or it's the verse which talks about the good news of Christ's birth and also then expands upon what that news entails. So I want to turn our attention here to verse 10, but for the sake of context, let's back up to verse 8. So we're going to read verses 8 through 10 here. Verse 8 says this, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people." Now, predictably, when the angels encounter, or excuse me, when the shepherds encounter the angel of the Lord, they are terrified. The reason I say that's predictable is because throughout the Bible, when someone encounters God or one of his representatives, their first thought is, we're about to die. And so when they encounter the angel here, the angel quickly reassures them in light of their their fear fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Now, that statement of the angel in verse 10 is chock full of significance. In fact, the angel's statement is the primary, primary source of our outline this morning. In verse 10, we see both the effect and the scope of the good news. But the content of the good news is explained in verse 11. And so let's look at verse 10 and then let it bleed into verse 11 because it's the content that comes into focus in verse 11. So verse 10, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That for clause, F-O-R, at the beginning of verse 11 helps us understand there's a connection between verse 10 and verse 11. Why should the shepherds not be afraid? Why should they be rejoicing? What is the content of the good news of great joy that is for all the people? Well, the content, as we learn in verse 11, is that a baby is born. Or to be more precise and use the language of verse 11, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Listen, anytime a baby is born, it's a big deal. There's a reason why people send out birth announcements or post photos on social media or send texts to their friends when a baby's born because the birth of any baby is significant. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that my brother had a baby, and when they did, they called me on FaceTime so that I could meet their daughter, and that is good and right and appropriate. Anytime a baby is born, there's reason for celebration. But in verse 11, the angel is very clear in helping us understand why the birth of Jesus is different than the birth of any other baby. It's because Jesus is not just a baby. He is Savior, He is Christ, He is Lord. Those three titles help us understand why the birth of Jesus is such a big deal. They help us understand what we're celebrating on Christmas. They help us understand the content of the good news. And because those three titles are so important, And because they comprise the content of the good news, I think it's worth considering each of them in turn. So let's start first with the idea that Jesus is the Savior. Again, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Now to say that Jesus is a Savior is to imply that he has to save us from something. And indeed, that is exactly what the title means. Later on in the Gospel of Luke Jesus himself clarifies his mission by saying, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. The question is, what is he saving us from? And the short answer to that question is, our sin. Both by nature and by choice, we are sinners. We've rebelled against the God of the universe. We've forsaken his ways and gone our own ways. It doesn't take much to realize this, does it? it? We look at the world around us, we look at the way... Our friends and neighbors live. We even look at our own hearts. We realize we've rebelled against his ways. We've abandoned his design, and we live according to our own pleasures and desires. Or to say it more succinctly, we've sinned against the holy God. And as such, the Bible is very clear on this. We deserve the righteous wrath of God. We deserve to be punished for our sin. And until you understand that, you will never understand why the birth of Jesus Christ is such good news. Jesus didn't come to assist us in becoming better people. He didn't come to offer a moral example of a better way to live. He didn't come so we could put up cute signs in our neighborhood saying Jesus is the reason for the season. No, he came to rescue us from our sin. He came to bring us out of darkness and into marvelous light. He came to deliver us from death to life. He came to save us. There's not a person in this room who could stand before God on the basis of their own merit. All of us, and again the Bible is very clear on this, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As such, we deserve the righteous wrath of God. But Jesus came to rescue us from our sin. He entered into our broken world. He took on flesh. And eventually he would go to the cross. He would die in order that he could save us from our sin. And listen, if that does not make you thankful this morning, If it does not fill you with gratitude, I would just humbly suggest that you don't understand the depths of your own sin or the greatness of God's love that he would send his son to die for you. The baby born in Bethlehem is the Savior. But secondly, we also see that Jesus is the Christ. Again, verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David as Savior, who is Christ? Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means that he is the Messiah, The promised one who would come and rescue the people from their sin. The anointed one who would deliver us out of darkness. As we've already discussed multiple times in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is intent in his gospel on helping us understand that Jesus is the one who is prophesied about in the Old Testament. Luke wants us to understand that Jesus' arrival on the scene is part of God's big plan of salvation that was promised long ago. Sometimes when we, in 2023, read the Old Testament, we come to the conclusion that the Old Testament is antiquated and out of date, as if it's been replaced by version 2.0, the New Testament, the better version. But that's not how Luke or the other New Testament authors, or for that matter, Jesus himself viewed the Old Testament. The Old Testament was not replaced by the New Testament. Rather, the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and thus a continuation of the message that started all the way back in Genesis 1. All of the promises of the Old Testament, all of the foreshadowing of the Old Testament, all of the prophecies of the Old Testament find its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in using the title Christ, the angel is making this clear to us. Jesus is not disconnected from the work of God in the Old Testament. He is the promised Messiah who is prophesied about in the Old Testament. He's the one who would rescue the people from their sin. He is the Christ. But also we see he is Lord. Again, verse eleven says this: For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In the Old Testament, the title of Lord is predominantly used to describe God, and it's meant to emphasize His sovereignty. And I think the angel uses the terminology of Lord purposefully here to clue us in that Jesus is more than just one who would deliver and save; He's more than just the Messiah. He is God. He is the sovereign King of the universe. And it's that title of Jesus that makes the Christmas story all the more perplexing and mysterious and wonderful and humbling. Consider his background, or consider the background of his birth. Look again at verses 1 to 7. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now obviously, much has been made over the years about the conditions surrounding Jesus' birth, and for good reason the king of the universe, was born in a middle-of-nowhere town and placed in a feeding trough for animals. That's crazy. I read an article earlier this week where some fam- famous fashion designer willingly chose to pay over $50,000 to- so that her child could be born in the most luxurious hospital room in a London hospital. Now I'm not talking about an insurance snafu here where she got stuck with the bill. I'm talking about she knew what her insurance covered and then on top of that she said, I want $50,000 worth Of luxury, I want to make sure that my child is born in the most luxurious accommodations possible. Meanwhile, the God of the universe was born in the middle of nowhere town and placed in a feeding trough for animals. And I think Luke wants us to understand this is intentional. This is part of God's plan. In verses 1 to 3, there's mention of a census. And it seems, as you're reading verses 1 to 3, that perhaps Caesar Augustus or Corinius, that they're calling the shots. That they're ordering a census which is scattering people to every corner of the Roman Empire. But by mentioning Bethlehem and referring to it as the city of David, Luke is wanting to to clue us in. There's something more afoot here. Luke is wanting us to remember a prophecy from the Old Testament regarding the birthplace of the Savior. Specifically, Micah 5.2 talks about one who'd come from Bethlehem and be a ruler over all of Israel. One whose origins was from old, from ancient days. In light of what we read here in Luke 2, it's clear that prophecy is referring to Jesus. Jesus is the one who'd come from Bethlehem. He's the one whose origins were of ancient days. And so while these rulers mentioned in verses 1 and 2 seem like maybe they're in control, it becomes pretty apparent to us as we go on that actually they're not in control at all. That God is using them in order to fulfill his purposes. There's nothing that happens in the first seven verses that's an accident, including the birthplace of the Savior. It's not an accident that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's not an accident that there was no room in the inn, and instead, Jesus was born in an animal room and placed in a feeding trough for animals. The God of the universe willingly made himself low. At his birth, he was laid in a manger, and eventually he would die a death on a cross hanging between two robbers. And all of it, and this is important, was intentional. Philippians 2 says it this way, Jesus humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. I don't know if you've ever seen videos before where a movie star or an athlete or a musician or a politician starts screaming at someone, do you know who I am? Do you know what I can do to you? Well, that's pretty much the opposite of the Christmas story. Jesus was the true king, the one who deserves all glory and honor and praise, and yet he did not come into the world with a proverbial silver spoon in his mouth. He did not come into the world saying, do you know who I am? Instead, he was born into lowest of conditions. But this was part of the plan. So don't let the humble conditions of Jesus' birth fool you. The baby born in the manger is the king of the universe, sovereign God. He's Lord. He's Lord. So that's the content of the good news. The baby born in Bethlehem is not just any baby. He is Savior, Christ, Lord. But it's not just the content of the Christmas story that's noteworthy in Luke 2. It's also the effect of the good news. So we see the content of the good news, now the effect. Again, verse 10. It says, As an angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So what we're saying this morning is that the gospel is not just good news, but it's good news that leads to great joy. That's the effect. The effect of the good news is that it produces joy amongst those who understand its content. Listen, if you're here this morning and talk of Jesus' birth is making you bored, and you're thinking, I've heard this before, I don't need to hear it again. If that's you, it would seem to me that perhaps you've never actually understood the good news, or... At the very least, you've lost sight of it. Listen, if someone called me today and told me that they could save me a dollar at Runza, that would be fine, but it really wouldn't move the needle in terms of my overall joy and happiness in life. But if someone called today and told me that they could heal both my son and wife of their diseases, now that would be a moment of great joy. I don't even know how I would respond if that happened. I would be overwhelmed with emotion and overflowing with joy and happiness. And what I'm telling you this morning is this. The news of Jesus Christ's birth is less like getting a dollar off at Runza and more like hearing that one of your loved ones has been cured of a disease. In fact, the news of Jesus Christ's birth is even better news than that of the news of a relative being cured of a disease. Think about it this way as it relates to my family. Even if Tani and Dawson were miraculously healed of their diseases, they would still die one day. And in the meantime, they would still have to live in the brokenness of this world. But because of the birth of Jesus Christ and his eventual death and resurrection, there is hope of life after death. And there's hope that one day there'll be no more brokenness, no more pain, no more death, no more diseases. The birth of Jesus Christ is far better news than even the most miraculous of healing stories. And so listen, if the good news of Jesus Christ's birth doesn't make you happy this morning, if it doesn't produce a joy in you, rest assured, The problem is not in the content of the good news. The problem is your own heart. Now listen, I'm just going to be honest here. As I've gotten older, I've found that I can be irritated a little bit easier, and I can be a little bit more depressed about the world and the direction it's headed in. I'm not saying I'm a grumpy old man yet, but I can see how you would get there. I really can. And I think I understand why so few people finish their lives with joy and contentment. It's because life on this earth is hard. It is. The world is broken. And sometimes, if we're honest, living here just stinks. And so the longer you live, the more life tends to wear you down. It's hard to be joyful when all you see in the world around you is that everything is messed up. But I do think there's an antidote to help us fight against perpetual grumpiness and cynicism and a sour attitude. And the antidote is remembering the good news of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. And I don't mean that in some sort of hokey, religious, mumbo-jumbo type way. I'll oh, just remember his birth, everything will be fine. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is making a practice of remembering what Jesus has done and who he is. Here's what I've found to be true in my own life. When I'm drinking deeply at the fountain of God's word, And when I'm walking closely with Jesus in obedience, and when I'm meditating regularly on the truths of the gospel, and when I'm living in community with other believers where we're talking regularly about Christ together, my grumpiness goes down and my joy goes up. I don't think that's a coincidence. The good news of the gospel should produce joy. If you are in Christ, you are dead, but now you're alive. You are blind, but now you can see. You are lost, but now you're found. That's not one dollar off it runs the good news. That's your life has been radically changed and eternity will never be the same good news. Now in saying that, I'm not suggesting that Christians should always be happy-go-lucky. We should always just have smiles on our face and say, this is great. Now listen, there's a place for lament. There's a place for sorrow. There's a place for grief. In fact, I would just say this. If you never experience sadness... That would be odd to me given the brokenness of this world. I would actually be concerned for you if the brokenness of this world never leaves, never leads you to grieve and lament the fact that things are just so messed up. So when I talk about having joy in response to the good news of Jesus' birth, I'm not talking about having a cotton, candy, and rainbows mentality. I'm not talking about having the type of mindset in which you celebrate tragedy and you smile when you see wickedness in action. That would be weird and even antithetical to the gospel. What I am talking about, though, is this. Embracing the good news of who Jesus is to the point that everything we see in the world is seen through that lens. I'm talking about having a mindset in which the past work of Christ and the future glory that awaits give us hope and joy even in the midst of the brokenness of the world. I'm talking about being the type of person who can be sorrowful and yet at the same time rejoice I'm talking about being the type of person who's so aware of the good news and so confident of the future resurrection that awaits that we don't lose our minds or lose our cool every time something goes wrong. I'm talking about having joy in the midst of brokenness. When I think of people I know who live with this type of mentality, I think of my friend Lyle. Lyle's been through some hardships in his life, including the loss of a daughter. But every time I'm around the guy, he is joyful. Now, I'm not suggesting he's a robot here. He still gets frustrated with things. I know he's told me before he gets discouraged on many days. And I'm sure there are other days where he's just incredibly sad. But even in the midst of that, when I think of my friend, the emotion I think of most is joy. Listen, as Christians, we have the best news possible. Jesus came to this earth. He took on flesh. He died for our sins, and he rose from the dead. And one day he will come again and make things right And if we've trusted in him, we will be with him forever. Christian, this should produce joy. Not robotic, stick your head in the sand and ignore all the troubles joy, but genuine joy based on the reality of who Jesus is. So that's the effect of the good news. It produces joy. But lastly, I want you to see the scope of the good news. Again, verse 10 says this. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. As the angel tells the shepherds here, he brings good news of great joy for all the people. That's the scope of the good news. It's for all the people. Now it's possible in this context when the angel talks about all the people, the angels is referring to all the people of Israel. But even if that is the case here in Luke 2, we know from the rest of the New Testament the book of Acts, from the book of Revelation, really everywhere in between, that the good news of Jesus Christ is indeed good news for all people everywhere, Jew or Gentile. So no matter what background you come from, or where you come from, or what you've done, the birth of Jesus Christ is good news. And actually, the presence of the shepherds in this story reminds us of that. Some have suggested that at this time, shepherds were despised. I don't think that's actually true. I think that was probably true centuries later. But at the time of Jesus' birth, I would say the shepherds weren't so much despised as they were forgotten. They were working, humble, lowly people. Working class, humble, lowly people. They were not influential or culturally relevant. Most of the time, they were probably dirty, and they didn't smell very good. And even in this story, they're watching their flocks at night, which is not exactly glamorous work fending off thieves and wild animals in the middle of the night sounds great until you're actually doing it. And then it's just hard and scary. And yet God chooses to reveal the birth of his son to these shepherds. Why? Well, I would suggest that at least part of the reason is because this is how God often works. He doesn't typically use the powerful and the wealthy and the mighty, although sometimes he does. Usually, though, as 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us, he uses the weak and the despised and the irrelevant the lowly people of the world, the shepherds. The shepherd's presence in this story reminds us that no matter your lot in life, God can use you and the gospel is good news for you. Whatever your background, whatever your education level, whatever your appearance, whatever your skin color, whatever your age, whatever your occupation, whatever your financial status, the birth of Jesus Christ is good news for you. Now the benefits of his birth and life and death, death and resurrection belongs solely to those who have trusted in him for salvation. But the incarnation of Jesus Christ is indeed good news for all people everywhere. Because it means if you turn to Jesus Christ, you can be saved. Your sins can be forgiven and you can have peace with God. Listen, some of you probably need to be reminded of that this morning. Maybe you're here. And your past sin is so overwhelming that it feels like God could never forgive you. Or maybe you're here and it feels like you just can't find your spot in life. You feel rudderless and discouraged. Or maybe you're here and there's some past tragedy that happened in your life that just feels like this weight on your shoulders that you can never get rid of. Or maybe you're here and you just can't make sense of the brokenness of the world and it makes you feel confused and hopeless. Or maybe you're here And you become so caught up in the world that it feels like you could never get back on track spiritually. You're just so far off, it feels daunting to figure out, how do I get back on track? Or maybe you're here because it's Christmas Eve and your family made you come. Listen, I don't know what your circumstances are, but here's what I do know. Regardless of your circumstances, the birth of Jesus Christ is good news for you. Jesus came to set free those who are imprisoned by their sin. Jesus came to give purpose and meaning to those who feel rudderless. Jesus came to bring healing to those who are broken. He came to give hope to those who are hopeless. He came to bring life to those who are spiritually dead. He came to awaken the spiritually indifferent. In other words, Jesus came to save sinners. Indeed, that is good news of great joy for all the people, including all the people in this room. So listen, I know that a lot of people have a lot of different opinions about the meaning of Christmas. For some, it's about family. For others, it's about presents and tradition. Apparently, for some kids in Mississippi, it's about cookies and warm milk and gold coins. But given what we read in Luke 2, I think it's pretty obvious what the Christmas story is actually about. It's about the baby. It's about the one who was born in a manger who just happened to be Savior, Christ, and Lord. Christmas is about Jesus. And indeed, I want to remind you this morning, the birth of Jesus Christ is good news of great joy, for all the people, including you and including me. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the good news that we read about in Luke 2. And I pray that as we celebrate Christmas today and tomorrow and maybe even throughout the rest of the week that we would not forget the content of the good news that Jesus Savior Christ and Lord, that we would not forget the effect of the good news that produces joy, and that we would not forget the scope of the good news that is for all people everywhere, including us. And so I pray that we would leave here this morning with joy because we know that you are good, and we know that you sent your Son, and because of that we have hope. Lord, help us to leave here joyful people today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.